Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So happy Mother's Day to everyone. And today I'll address then the uh, issue of mothers, but not just mothers, but women. Sometimes women appear to be denigrated in the Bible. But of course, I think there is a clear affirmation of women, of mothers, of the feminine, and even a, a celebration in Scripture. Now, on the other hand, the Bible pictures sin as impacting humans, not only in the experience of alienation, but in conceiving all things in a kind of alienating manner. That is that there's a failure of humanity. And this failure, we imagine, oh, that's just the case. That's the truth. That's the only humanity we know. And so we assume that the male-female antagonism or body-soul antagonism. Well, that's just reality. And the New Testament then explains that and gives us a cure for that. But the explanation is connected to the flesh. And that's this passage here in Ephesians 2-3. Among them, we too all formally lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And notice two things here. This passage indicates there is the living in the flesh, and then there's the thinking in the flesh, or there's the mind of the flesh. As 1 Corinthians 3.3 describes it, being fleshly then will involve this antagonism that we're going to get between the feminine and the masculine or between the soul and the body. Paul says, you are still fleshly for there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? In modern psychology and psychoanalysis, the idea is that there is an antagonism structuring the subject and this is a kind of necessity. Alienation and antagonism produce the subject. And most dualisms have as their goal, I think what we're describing, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a kind of antagonistic understanding. We imagine that we have some way the capacity to rid ourselves of the negative. And male is often associated with the soulish, the rational, the spiritual, while female is equated with the body, the natural, and the passions. And so let me quote two church fathers. Jerome describes it, he says, as long as woman is for birth and children, she is different from man as body is from soul. But if she wishes to serve Christ more than the world, then she will cease to be a woman and will be called man. In other words, there is a kind of denigration of the feminine. Even in the church, every human must strive for the masculine. And the Christ-like is to shed the feminine. I think, of course, this is a mistake. This is a failure of understanding. 
And clearly in this understanding, well, if you're feminine, if you're female, you start with a disadvantage. Ambrose writes, she who does not believe is a woman and should be designated by the name of her bodily sex. Whereas she who believes progresses to complete manhood, to the measure of the adulthood of Christ. She then does without worldly name, gender of body, youthful seductiveness, and garrulousness of old age. And so what is at play, even in these Christian texts, these church fathers, is the notion, oh, the masculine is the positive, the abstract the spiritual, the soulish, the universal, and the feminine is bound to the body. I think the, the psychoanalytic insight and the Christian insight is to assign what many have concluded is universal to a sickness. There's something wrong in this kind of thinking. And the details of it may vary, you know, as to maybe we call it Neoplatonism, in which there's a continual opposed pairs, a continual dialectic of dualism. Maybe it's just Adam and Eve, Adam against Eve. But the point is that what both psychoanalysis and Christianity provide is a diagnosis of the human disease which explains how humans are traumatized by death. Death resistance, you know, this is the various phrases you get in psychology, in the Oedipus complex, human sexuality, maybe in the orientation in the Bible to law. Whether psychology gets it right in the details or not, I think it overlaps with the biblical understanding in that it explains the shape of male-female or body-soul antagonism it explains how this, in fact, does constitute one form of humanity. What it does not provide, and what the Bible provides, what Christ provides, is a resolution, a solution to this antagonism. If this fleshly thinking and doing are the center of the problem, then this we can understand is what Christ has accomplished. That is that Christ brings healing, he saves, he saves from dualism and antagonism, and that begins, guess where? In the family, between husband and wife, between male and female. It's important though to see that Christ accomplished this in the flesh. You know, flesh in the Bible, it may sometimes have a kind of neutral connotation, but very often it has an evil connotation. It indicates the condition of man in contradiction, in antagonism, in disorder, in sickness. You know, man after Adam's fall, the man who lives a fleeting life in the neighborhood of death and corruption. And Christ has come Romans 8 says to condemn sin in sinful flesh. He suffered, 1 Peter 4.1 says, in the flesh. Colossians 1.22 says he reconciled us in the body of his flesh. Ephesians 2.15 says he abolished in his flesh the enmity. 
And Paul goes through. Oh, this is Jew-Gentile enmity. This is male-female enmity. This is slave-free enmity. In Hebrews, it says that he parted the veil in the temple and provided entry through his flesh into God's presence. And even in his resurrection body, he is still in his flesh in Luke 24. He provides in John 6 true food and true drink continually through his flesh. That the flesh is not simply evil, but Christ has redeemed it. The problem we have is indeed in the flesh. The problem is indeed male and female. The problem is indeed husband and wife. But Christ has redeemed us. He's redeemed this category. So flesh in itself speaks of death, disorder, disobedience. And through his flesh, through Christ's flesh, there is life, there is order, there is obedience. The flesh, you know, Paul says, in itself profits nothing. But it becomes a purposeful instrument. That is that we work out our salvation, Paul says, in the flesh. The flesh, which in itself is lost, attains a determination and a hope. That our hope is a fleshly hope. The flesh, which in itself is illogical, irrational, through Christ becomes logical. It becomes rational. Just as the Logos becomes flesh and Jesus is flesh, it's shown that this man Jesus has and is spirit and life and flesh. That is, he's all of these things. Flesh itself becomes quickening and living and meaningful. Now what I've done here is I've shifted the category to say, well, how do we understand what the true nature of human beings are. Christ serves as the definition of what it means to be truly human. You know, in anthropology or psychology, we would define the human through antagonism and dualism. But no more do we define by soul, body, male, female, antagonism and dualism. You know, no longer is it the case that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Now last week I spoke of Luther, kind of a uh, bad thing about Luther, his anti-Semitism, but I want to say a good thing about Luther and the Protestant Reformation that's actually developed in a theologian called Karl Barth. And that is that there is a recovery of this thing that I'm describing, this Christocentrism. So instead of starting with just the human condition as we have it and then understanding Christ in that condition, what somebody like Bart is doing, he does not start with the phenomena of the human in itself, you know, like the anthropologist or the psychologist. As this, he says, will always go astray, especially, he says, as they always arouse at this point the burning interest which powerful inner contradictions always bring to light. That is, in this understanding, there will always be the antagonism, there will always be the dualism, 
Men will always be from Mars and women will always be from Venus. Life will always be over and against death, male versus female, body versus soul. But the turn to Jesus Christ as our model is simultaneously a turn from the notion that this is normative. That this antagonism and dualism is the way that it has to be. Now, I think Karl Barth, he's actually returning to an understanding of the New Testament, an understanding of the early church, which begins with Christ as the definition of what it means to be human. That if we do not begin there, this creates, he says, a certain one-sidedness, like we saw in Ambrose and in Jerome. The downgrading and oppression of women, the privileging of the soul, the degrading of the body. This actually represents a kind of majority position in the history of the church. But by making Christ definitive of what it means to be human, we set theology on a different foundation. The body, soul, male, female, you know, mind, body, antagonism, dualism, is approached and resolved in Christ. This is Bart, the way he describes this. The ontological determination of humanity is grounded in the fact that one man among all others is the man Jesus. So long as we select any other starting point for our study, we shall reach only the phenomena of the human. If we do not start with Christ, all we have is confusion. All we have is antagonism. We are condemned to abstractions as long as our attention is riveted as it were on other men, on people or humans in general. If we do this, we miss the one Archimedean point given to us beyond humanity. But we learn from this man, Jesus Christ, and therefore the possibility of discovering the ontological determination of man. What Bard is saying, we set the doctrine of creation on anthropology, and we set anthropology on the doctrine of Christ. Christ is the Archimedean point for understanding humanity and creation. The incarnate Christ provides the concrete center. He is the central object of the theological doctrine of creation. He is the source of our knowledge of the nature of man as created by God. We don't know what humanity is apart from Christ. He's our source of what it means to be human. So, in Christ we see humans are both body and soul. And this is reflected in scripture again and again about Christ. We are created male and female in his image. We are created body and soul in his image. Christ is the one who whole man embodied soul and besouled body. The one in the other and never merely beside it. The one never without the other but only with it and in it present and active the one with all its attributions always to be taken as seriously as the other. That is, the denigration of the feminine is like a denigration of the body, a denigration of the world. 
And that kind of antagonism is undone in Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ, in fact, do not alter. They, uh, he is still body and soul in this order. The whole man, body and soul, he rises from the dead. He sits at the right hand of God. The soul and body, wholeness, is an eternal fact about who he is. He does not fulfill his office and his work in such a way that he can separate inner from outer or outer from inner. He is simultaneously inner, invisible, spiritual, and outer, visible, and bodily. Christ gives himself. You know, you can find passage after passage that are saying the same thing. It may refer to he gives himself, he gives his soul, he gives his body. Galatians 1.4 says, giving himself for us. Matthew 20, 28 says, giving his soul. Luke 22.19 says, giving his body. They're not saying anything different that it's Christ giving himself for us. Jesus, he himself, is his soul and his body. And it is the one whole man who died on the cross and thus made our sin inoperative. He reconciled us. And in turn, it is the whole man, body and soul, that is raised bodily in the flesh. So body and soul are not parallels. They're not an antagonism. Their union in him means that they are considered together. They've come together. They cannot be considered independently. They are in and with one another. They are the oneness and wholeness of his life. Now that's not to deny that there is a higher and a lower, a dominating and a dominated. But Jesus is both in himself. Now Karl Barth doesn't mention male and female principle here. But inasmuch as these might, not that they have to, but they might represent body and soul or the sensuous and the rational, it can only be said that Jesus is both. His life of soul and body is really his life. He has full authority over it. And so the work of Christ in the flesh can be equated with creation itself. That is, here is the ordering of chaos into a cosmos. The reconciliation, the ordering of Christ in the flesh, this is the triumph of the meaning of human existence. We have healing now. Soul and body are brought together. Male and female are brought together. Man and wife are brought together in Christ. The human condition in itself offers no explanation, no rationale. But through the ordering of the flesh in Christ, we understand now how things are to be ordered. This establishes a new basis for understanding humanity, for understanding creation, and for understanding male, female, father, mother. And so the Christian response to dualism we recognize, oh yeah, that's one form of human subjectivity, this antagonism, this alienation between male and female, or between body and soul. 
But there's one human to whom this does not apply, and this is the really human one, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus is the alternative to alienation, to antagonism, to dualism, to men are from Mars and women are from Venus. He applies an alternative ground, a holistic understanding. He bandages our wounds and will wipe away our tears like a good mother. He comforts us and he carries us close to his heart. In Philippians, he urged his disciples to rest like a mother. Scripture shows us that God is said to be like a perfect mother. God is described in Isaiah as a woman in labor. In Deuteronomy as having given birth to his people. He's compared in Isaiah to a nursing mother. He's compared to a comforting mother in many places, in Isaiah and in Psalms. And to a mother teaching her child how to walk in Hosea. God is described as a mother bear whose cubs have been taken away. Or as a hungry lioness in Hosea chapter 13. He's described as a mother eagle in Deuteronomy 13. Or as a mother hen in Matthew and Luke. And Jesus likened God to a woman cleaning her house to find a lost coin. God provided just enough healthy food for his people. He provides like a mother. He provides for us as well. And I believe with this understanding, we can fully embrace the feminine with the masculine. There is no longer higher and lower principle or superior and inferior. Christ is fully human and divine. And we understand God's image within us is mother and father, husband and wife, feminine and masculine. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.